This is JAMDA on the go. Your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Did you know that the post-acute and long-term care setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates, which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions? Join AMDA's new initiative. It's called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC. Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jammed on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Jamda on the Go. This episode, we'll be discussing challenging issues in the management of diabetes in older adults with multiple comorbidities. Our takeoff point is a series of original studies and an editorial on the topic of diabetes in older adults in the September 2021 issue of JAMDA, the Journal for the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. We'll be presenting and discussing as well real cases that our participants have encountered in practice. Today's guests include Dr. Philip Sloan, JAMDA's co-editor-in-chief and a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Dr. Mallory Brown, associate editor at JAMDA and an associate professor at UNC Chapel Hill. In addition, we have a renowned guest in uh, geriatrics and in diabetes care, Dr. Nishira Panja, a professor of geriatrics at Nova Southwestern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Dr. Pena has been involved in numerous national panels on diabetes care, and she co-authored with Dr. Sloan an editorial in the September issue 2021 of JAMDA on individualizing diabetes care in older adults with multiple morbidities. Dr. Sloan and Dr. Brown, welcome back to JAMDA on the go. Happy to be here, Wayne. Thanks, Wayne. Happy to be here. And of course, wonderful and privileged to have you as well, Dr. Panjo. Welcome to Jam to On The Go. Thanks. It's an honor to be here again. So before we get started with our cases, Dr. Sloan, tell us about uh, the articles on uh, diabetes that can be found in the September uh, 2021 issue of JAMDA. Well, there are four articles in an editorial. I'll talk briefly about two, which focus on the relationship between diabetes and common comorbidities. The first paper from a research group in Japan reports data on a cohort of a community dwelling persons aged 65 and older with mild cognitive impairment. Their sample included some with diabetes, some with prediabetes, and some with normal hemoglobin A1Cs. Over the four-year study period, they looked for factors associated with regression of mild cognitive impairment to normal cognitive status. After controlling for a wide variety of other risk factors, they found a significant association between mean hemoglobin A1C level and regression from MCI to normal cognitive state. And this is one of the holy grail of things mm. where diabetes management actually makes a difference. Mm. And there's also a good explanation for this. You know, as you know, there are two types of MCI. One is amnestic MCI, and that 
tends to progress to Alzheimer's disease is probably pre-Alzheimer's. The other is non-amnestic mild cognitive impairment. And it's due to such things as chronic illness, metabolic disruption, and polypharmacy. Now, a lot of people don't realize, but it turns out that the non-amnestic type is the most common type in many settings. You know, we studied it in assisted living and found it was much more common than the amnestic type. And diabetes may well be another of those. So, Dr. Sloan, just... just uh for the edification of our of our listeners is it is it no longer kind of common thinking that 15 to 20 percent of folks with malcognitive impairment will progress to alzheimer oh yes but those are the amnestic type right you thank you subdivided you know and you know it's there's a lot of metabolic polypharmacy you know disruptive things mm. that cloud people's thinking they are labeled as mci you know, it's sort of like, you know, like a mild delirium. If you can clear it up, they'll do better over time. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. So I'll move on and discuss the other paper because we want to get to our cases. This is a preliminary study from Spain of an intervention to increase muscle strength in frail older persons with type 2 diabetes. The intervention consisted of two periods of 16 weeks each of resistance training plus a nutritional education program it focused on appropriate diet, avoiding hypoglycemia, and applying diabetes sick day rules. They found that significant gains in functional capacity and muscle strength were achieved during the program and persisted for a year after the intervention stopped. I think the lesson here is that the attention to exercise, nutrition, and avoiding hypoglycemia can have positive effects even in old, frail persons with diabetes. And I think if I may add that, you know, the association between age and diabetes and frailty is becoming increasingly recognized. Um, and uh, diabetes is really now a cause of frailty. And uh, the other problem with functional impairment is lower extremity strength. And mm -hmm. that declines in people with diabetes. Mm -hmm. And there's more uh, on the topic of diabetes in the September 2021 issue of JAMDA as well. Um, two papers make the point that in long-term care populations, um, something that you know those of us in geriatrics have have known and have practiced, that we need to be concerned about hypoglycemia as much and possibly more than we need to worry about hyper glycemia. Uh, in addition, the editorial by Dr. Sloan and Pandya, you know, ends up presenting kind of a, a, a mini review for us on, on diabetes management in, in older adults. Um, but there's lots to draw from as we ponder over the uh, problem cases uh, today. Uh, Dr. Brown, do you have a case to present? I sure do. I have several from my practice to present. Um, the first that I'll talk about is an 85-year-old woman who moved into our nursing home facility about a year ago. Um, since then, she's gained approximately 30 pounds. She's completely wheelchair-bound at this point, whereas prior to admission, she did ambulate with a walker. Her A1C is now 9.5, whereas before admission, she was doing fairly well in metformin, 1,000 milligrams twice a day. What happened and um, what do y'all think can realistically be done? Okay, 
I guess I'm on the spot for that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I had some thoughts about this, uh, uh, Mallory. One thing is we need to recognize that diabetes is a progressive disease and it's not going to stay static. Uh, even in the early studies with UK PBS, there was a 0.2% increase in A1C, no matter what the treatment modality was. So I often tell my patients that, that it's a progressive disease. In time, you will need more treatment. Um, so having said that, I think well, because of the 30-pound weight gain, um, I would suggest, and you probably looked at this, look for other causes of weight gain also while we're uh, dealing with the diabetes, such as, you know, is she in heart failure? Is she hypothyroid? Uh, does she have obstructive sleep apnea? There's a strong association between uh, weight gain, poorly controlled diabetes, and sleep apnea. So I would uh, concurrently, you know, evaluate her for those things. I mean, certainly she's not uh, in a good place, an A1C of 9.5% is equivalent to an estimated average glucose of 226 milligrams per deciliter. So my thoughts, in addition to looking uh, and evaluating of other causes of weight gain, uh, especially sleep apnea, uh, would be to think of adding a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Mm. Um, because while there are many other oral options, um, this one uh, will lead to some weight loss. Obviously, it's not a weight loss drug, although recently high-dose semaglutide has been recommended for weight loss. So that would be something I would try. The other strategy that would help with some weight loss um, would be uh, an SGLT2 inhibitor. Now, of course, you have to chew, pick your battles carefully with that. You know, the person has to be able to hydrate themselves. They should not be prone to frequent UTIs or, you know, genital uh, fungal infections and so forth. Although one or two episodes like this is not a reason not to use those drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, we now also have an oral um, GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, by the name of Rebelsis. So I think that those uh, are worth trying. Uh, she is at a stage where she needs additive therapy. And the other thing is I, um, that's important is to mo try to mobilize her. You know, does she have, what, what is the cause for the immobility? Uh, is it just the weight gain, you know, depression, just a sedentary lifestyle? Uh, so I think mobilizing her and doing uh, whatever you could in terms of exercise with her, like upper body, using a, a station, you know, an arm bicycle, or just using her legs on a stationary bicycle, uh, ankle weights, anything you can do to mobilize her would help. So I'm wondering what you think about this. Yes, thank you so much. I think what we've unfortunately seen is as she's moved into the nursing home, um, she has become more dependent for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. And that's why she went from being um, ambulatory with a walker to wheelchair bound. Um, and so we will continue to certainly give it our, our all to get her moving. Because um, I think you're, you're so right about the exercise, um, particularly with the weight gain as one piece of, we, we've attributed it to more readily available meals and desserts mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, right. <laughs> uh, lack of exercise. But really interesting to hear you talk about some of the other oral 
agents um, as great options too. And in my own practice, I've actually, you know, struggled and then found that I've missed, you know, people who have sleep apnea. So that's mm -hmm. always worth thinking mm -hmm. about. You know, Fascinating. You, you know, Dr. Panja, I, I have to ask you because I know that our listeners are thinking this right now. So, you know, I was recently called in to render an opinion about an 80-year-old gentleman who um, who is on some of these medications that you're talking about, has lost a significant amount of weight, has actually become a little bit more frail, um, but the goal was to get down uh, to a hemoglobin A1C of less than seven, if possible. Mm -hmm. um, so hemoglobin A1C, the, the recommendations from the ADA, all of those things, how do you, how do you look at, how should we be looking at the thoughts around hemoglobin A1C? Yeah, so... That's a really important point. And we, you know, most physician statements and guidelines have made attempts to reach a consensus. And what we broadly recognize is three uh, health status categories, you know, people who are in fairly good health functioning in the community, and people who, who can go with traditional A1C goals, which by the way, are not less than 7%, mm -hmm. I think 7 to 7.5% for a functional person living in the community would be more reasonable. Mm. And then, you know, for people who are, have intermediate or very uh, uh, complex uh, medical conditions, impairment of ADLs, risk of falls, hypoglycemia, um, then the goals are more tempered and A1C of eight to 8.5% is more reasonable. Mm. Mm. And then there are people who have advanced chronic conditions who have a limited life expectancy or may indeed be at the end of life. Uh, there, uh, you really don't have an A1C goal there. You avoid relying on the A1C. But what you do is promote comfort, dignity, avoid extreme hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia, dehydration. You know, you want to avoid hospitalization, ER visits, and you would follow just periodic blood sugars and treat, you know, accordingly um, with as simple a treatment regimen as possible and we can discuss that later oh, wonderful recommendations and now a word from our sponsor u.s post-acute care let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations now more than ever post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients at U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Dr. Brown, you're on a roll. <laughs> well, my next 
case, if we're if we're all willing to move to that, um, this was really interesting. And thank you in particular for the A1C recommendations. Um, but my next case was as much about treatment negotiation as about medical decision making. I'd be interested in the group's advice. So this particular patient's a 90-year-old woman with a long history of type 2 diabetes who I was asked to evaluate because she'd recently experienced three witnessed falls. In each case, her blood glucose was found to be less than 100. Her most recent A1C was 6.5. The staff warned me, however, that she and her family were adamant that her blood sugars remain well controlled as she has always strived for an A1C of less than six. How would you all approach this situation? Um, well, I'll take a go at it first. And I've been <laughs> in your situation um, several times, uh, Mary. Um, so obviously, the first thing is to educate the family that for a 90-year-old woman, um, an A1C of 6% is really not reasonable. And sometimes I've had to pull rank with my families and say, look, I helped to write the guidelines for um, uh, long-term care. And, you know, the, and the, the recommendation is a much higher A1C. And for a 90-year-old who was in an institutional setting, you know, between 8, 8.5, unless she was at the end of life, that would be reasonable. So besides education and uh, getting them up to speed. I'd quickly review her medications and look at her weight trajectory. Has there been a, uh, you know, weight gain, weight loss? What is her intake like? And look at her medications and see what could I uh, simplify and how could I de-intensify the treatment? You know, for instance, the, the biggest culprits for um, hypoglycemia or sulfonylureas. Is she on sliding scale insulin? If she's on minuscule doses of prandial insulin, those could go. Um, so I think that's what I would do. I'd look at her eating pattern. And you know, some of these families are so well educated and have been so diligent their whole life, which is probably why she made yeah. it to 90, yeah. uh, yeah. that they'd be exactly. you know, they're extra careful about diets. And um, so I would liberalize her diet, you know, make sure she has snacks. And then um, also, because she has had witness falls, I might step up her glucose monitoring. I'd be worried about this lady that she was getting nighttime hypoglycemia. Mm -hmm. You know, so for even a short, you know, week or two, just so you know where you stand, I think it's reasonable to do an ACNHS AccuCheck to pick up what's happening, uh, unless you have a continuous glucose monitor, and even throw in a 3 a.m. blood sugar. I mean, I, the diet part is really important because um, I think we still overly restrict people. And I often ask a trick question to my residents and students, you know, what diet should they be? And they hmm. think all these diets. And I say, well, they should be on a real food diet. <laughs> and, um, I, I can't tell you how many hugs I've got from patients just who I tell them, well, you want to eat cake? Eat cake. Exactly. Uh, small amount, you know, but eat cake, you know. So, Dr. Pandya, so I have to now go back to what I know our listeners are thinking. Um, it, you know, um, so before we talked about hemoglobin A1C, but now I want to talk about age. And, um, and I'm talking about age as a geriatrician. But in this individual, in a 90-year-old in a yeah. or a 95-year-old, somebody even talking about somebody who's, you know, 
uh, ambulating well, you know, doing well, stable. Is there a, is there a, a, a limit to, to medication um, efficacy? Is there a time in which you say not only let them eat cake, but let them eat cake and don't worry about giving them X medication? Just knowing about natural processes of aging that are occurring um, that we can't see. Yeah, it's a very deep question. Given that she has type 2 diabetes, I don't expect that this will ameliorate with age. Um, she might even uh, become in more insulinopenic as time goes on. I mean, she mm -hmm. certainly doesn't need more therapy, but like your first patient over time will need more therapy uh, and more treatment. So I think age itself... Uh, does not make things uh, easier. But uh, as you said, what is the functional status? What are the goals for this patient? Right. You know, she wants to enjoy life uh, and enjoy her food. And even some weight gain is perfectly fine for a 90 year old. Mm. A balanced diet, high in protein, um, I think would be uh, just fine. Obviously medication choices would be limited by renal function and end organ disease. Uh, this is Phil. You know, I've got a confession to make. You know, I'm pre-diabetic and I watch my diet and I watch my hemoglobin A1C, but my family knows that when I'm in the nursing home, I want a hot fudge sundae every night. <laughs> <laughs> well, it really has to do with what, you know, what your goals are. Yeah. If I reach that point, my goals will be really to enjoy life, mm. not right. length of life. Exactly. And I had a patient in clinic this week, uh, uh, he's in his 80s. Uh, I got him in good control, but suddenly the blood sugar is in the two, three hundreds, and he takes care of a, a paraplegic wife. And uh, he told me he started eating Antamon pies. And so, and you know, that's his only pleasure. And so I have to work around the Antamon pies. And I added my <laughs> foreman. Uh, I've got him on enough insulin and GLP 1. And we're just going to see what happens. His A1C is adequate. Dr. Brown, you're bringing forth some very interesting discussions. How about another? <laughs> and so my, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the confession as well. Um, my final case <laughs> is a new onset diabetic that I encountered in our independent living portion of the CCCRC, where I attend. Um, She's an 80-year-old woman with a history of hypertension, reflux, and hypothyroidism. She is an avid uh, bicyclist and um, has always been active. Last month, presented to our community's dietitian because of weight loss and increased thirst. Her BMI is 18, um, which is, you know, maybe a point less than it was a year previously. The dietitian recommended some higher calorie foods, but no other interventions at that point. The patient also went to her medical provider um, to order a routine basic, so she went and saw actually another medical provider, excuse me, um, and that person had ordered a routine basic metabolic profile. Lo and behold, her blood sugar, which in the past had always been from 90 to 115, came back at 335. I thought, oh, well, something's, I didn't know about the um, weight loss and thirst. It was a routine blood order and uh, planning for an upcoming visit. And so we just repeated it. And a week later, her follow-up visit, an A1C was drawn and was found to be 10, wow. with at that point a blood sugar of 500. Mm. 
so um, what would you all say are best next steps in management? Would she be a candidate to be admitted from independent living to the nursing facility? Should treatment here be oral agents or initiating insulin? Um, and what other workup would you deem to be necessary for this new onset diabetic at age 80? Yes, this is a fascinating case um, and um, actually a very uh, important one. I don't think this lady is in uh, a good place. My first thought, I mean, it's clear she has diabetes, obviously, uh, and it's new onset. With the BMI of 18 and uh, the diabetes, she, was, she has what I would term diabetic cachexia, weight loss, and a kind of, although she's doing medically okay, she uh, has a diabetic cachexia, I think. And the hyperglycemia has also led to the weight loss because she has no glucose up. She has inadequate glucose uptake. And the problem with management is a lot of people try with orals and, you know, take time and everything moves very slowly. But she has glucotoxicity with glucose is in the 300s. And an A1C of 10% is really an indication for insulin. She may not need it forever, but I think she should be moved to a site where you can give her insulin, unless in her independent living setting, you can have enough support to at least give a dose of basal insulin once a day. And I would choose a dose like 0.1 units per kilo per day, okay? Or I often use, if I see somebody very tiny, I give eight units. And then every three or four days, I look at the fasting blood glucose. In her case, because the blood sugars are so high, I would at least measure blood sugar twice a day, let's say fasting and postprandial after the biggest meal. But what concerns me, and I've seen a couple of cases like this, this um, you know, florid onset of diabetes, there may be an underlying cause. And so patients with pancreatic cancer sometimes present with diabetes. Mm. And so I think it's worth at least um, doing her liver function test, which you probably have already. It's worth doing a C-peptide to see like, is there something affecting the pancreas? You know, does she, is she producing any insulin? And uh, doing thyroid function tests because her weight loss and if she were had, let's say apathetic thyrotoxicosis, she could develop hyperglycemia, but I've never seen it to this extent. So I think a, a search for underlying causes is worth doing in, in a patient like this. Um, once again, I wonder if our listeners are thinking the same thing that I am. So as, as geriatricians, you know, we, we, we may, some may not think about the annual physical exam anymore. It's more get somebody in a couple of times a year just for an overall assessment, see how they're doing. So this, you know, given Dr. Brown's description of this lady, this might have been somebody who saw her doctor once a year just for the annual yeah. checkup and kind of moved on. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, with, with normal aging, should we be thinking about uh, routine testing um, twice a year, maybe, of just to um, uh, for screening for um, for for things in this case for diabetes. No, I don't think um, annual testing of A1C is recommended. I mm. think what's recommended is anybody obviously 
who has, let's say, multiple cardiovascular risk factors, weight gain, who might have had stress, hyperglycemia, or some high levels with during a hospital stay. Maybe right. somebody who was on uh, drugs that could increase blood sugars, mm. you know, like uh, quinolones. Sometimes that uh, brings it to light. Um, right. It's worth checking uh, an A1C, but I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't check it uh, twice a year. Uh, once a year, and somebody with risk factors. Got it. Mallory and Phil, what would you do in your practices? We'll just say, um, unfortunately, the lab results came back um, and were not filtered straight to me. So part yeah. of her course was um, managed by someone who didn't know she was on a spin bike the morning of uh, diagnosis. And um, so anyway, fast forward to now, and she's doing fairly well on um, a low dose of Lantus and um, a low dose of metformin as well. So gained her weight back and um, is doing, following a diabetic diet and feels pretty good. Yeah, the other thing I, I would add, this is Phil, is that, um, you know, sometimes you just want to get on top of things quickly. And um, I think um, this is one of those cases where you want to do that. You know, you don't want to come in every week and um, making a little adjustment because if you can get things going more quickly, then you can really get things under control and get them back to their life. Patients, uh, it doesn't sound like this lady is such a patient, but people who are on antipsychotics, you know, can mm -hmm. develop diabetes very abruptly. Mm -hmm. and so that's always worth uh, thinking about and, you know, reviewing medications whenever possible. And even thiazide diuretics, for example. Indeed. You know, we're so fortunate to have Dr. Pondia with us. Um, do we have another case? <laughs> well, if we have time, I've got a case and I'm going to try to simplify it. It's really a complicated case, you know, but you know, and what cases aren't, you know, in post-acute long-term care. She's a type 2 diabetic. I saw not my regular patient, you know, and who, she's in her late 60s. She's got metastatic breast cancer to several bones. She's been taking 30 units of Lantus insulin daily, an oral hypoglycemic, in addition, plus a statin and an antihypertensive. Um, when I saw her, it was acutely because she was nauseated. She had increasing pain. She had a 25-pound weight loss over a couple months. You know, I treated her acutely, you know, hydrated her, this type of thing. And when her hemoglobin A1C came back, it was four. And so and there's a lot of issues I'm not going to talk about, but, you know, in terms of her diabetes, my question is, you know, how can we be simple and realistic in approaching diabetes when there are other bigger issues to deal with, you know, in somebody who is terminally ill, and but is also evolving metabolically? Yes, and I, uh, many, you know, several of the guidelines and physician statements have uh, looked at this population more closely. While there's very little research, I think there's still good consensus recommendations that uh, comfort, you know, hydration, adequate nutrition, pain management are the cornerstones. Uh, however, in this population, you do want to avoid the effects of hypoglycemia or extreme hyperglycemia, which, you know, has complications that I mentioned before, like dehydration you know, infections and so forth. So I think for this patient, um, I mean, the A1C of four is really uh, concerning and obviously repeating it, is there some other reason for such a low A1C? I mean, did she get transfused recently? 
Is she hemolyzing? But you mentioned her CBC was normal. Uh, very high triglycerides can also lower A1C. So in this patient, I would still follow her blood sugars, try to simplify the regimen. Uh, for instance, 30 units of Lantus, if the glucose levels were low, you could decrease that dose. Uh, does she really need an oral agent? Stop it if it's a sulfonylurea, uh, for sure. And you may get away with just a smaller dose of basal insulin, hmm. depending on her blood glucose levels. And the other thing I thought was, you know, is she getting hypoglycemic at times, you know, uh, could it be at night? Is it undetected hypoglycemia? And with her metastatic breast cancer, um, they can't help thinking like an endocrinologist and saying, well, I think maybe check her morning cortisol because she has the weight loss nausea and so forth. Lots to think about and thank you. Yeah, I know. The one thing I did do you know, even acutely with take her off her statin. I just figured yes. she's terminally sure. ill. Let's not, you know, do that kind of no thing. No need. Mm -hmm. And um, I like the idea of simplifying her regimen. And then I think you kind of have to follow it because she's evolving. Yeah. Um, yes. And oh, the first thing I saw was the oral hypoglycemic. And I thought mm. that's probably something that could go. Absolutely. Well, I think that we could continue this conversation, but um, I would definitely admit that this has uh, uh, wet my beak for wanting to take a look at the September 2021 issue of JAMDA for sure. Um, under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown and editorial board members like Dr. Panja, the Journal of the American Medical Director Association continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. Take a look at the September 2021 issue. Doctors Sloan, Brown, and Panja, thank you so much for spending your time with Jamda on the go. Thank you. Thank you, my pleasure. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. And until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for Jamda on the Go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.